Good morning, hello, good evening, wherever you are in the world. We are coming to you semi-live from Sydney, Australia and from Cape Town, South Africa. I have a special co-host with me today, um, one of the members of the Managed Flutter team, Charles Matthias. Charles, thank you very much for joining us. Big house to everybody from Cape Town. Um, episode number 44 of the It's a Monkey podcast. And uh, the It's a Monkey podcast is the podcast put together by some of the team members of Manage Flitter. You can follow the podcast at Monkey Podcast. Um, you can subscribe on iTunes. If you're listening on the website, just go to itsamonkey.com forward slash iTunes. Please leave a rating for us there. You can also comment on some of the stories. Tell your friends all about it. Um, we appreciate all the support. The, the listenership numbers are are growing nicely and uh, we hope that you enjoy the show we also love to hear from you tweet us email us um, and we'll give you a shout out on the show We've got a terrific show coming up for you today um, a little bit later in the show um, we'll be interviewing Florence Caraba who's a PhD student at the University of Bath and she published an interesting article on the conversation website um, titled Africa's Go-Getting Cities Offer an Entrepreneurial Launchpad. So we spoke to Florence and uh, we'll chat a little bit about entrepreneurship in Africa and um, some other exciting bits and pieces. But as usual, we get straight into it with some of the tech news of this week. Um, Charles, big news. Steve Barmer is finally free of Microsoft or Microsoft is finally free of Steve Barmer. Yeah, I think it's more the latter than the former. Um, I think there's a general sigh of relief in the Microsoft camp about this. And uh, I think it actually bodes well. And there's some good good opportunities for Microsoft now to actually maybe reclaim what they you know, once were. I, think, I don't think they'll necessarily ever be the giant or the IT powerhouse they ever were before. But um, they've still got a lot of cash behind them. But uh, things are looking up, I think. Well, interestingly, some interesting facts about Steve Barmer and Microsoft. So... Steve Barmer joined Microsoft in 1980 and he was number 30 and the first manager hired by Gates. Of course, he then landed up being um, Gates's right-hand person and then he landed up being CEO um, when Gates stepped down as CEO. But what I find quite interesting is, you know, a lot of us involved in consumer internet and even even some aspects of in enterprise internet, maybe not so much enterprise where Microsoft has a has a, a strong foothold. We d we don't bump into heads with Microsoft products that much. But have a look at some of these numbers. Under Obama's tenure as CEO, Microsoft's annual revenue surged from 25 billion to 70 billion turnover while its net profit increased 215% to $23 billion. Now, this is really interesting as well, that its gross profit is $0.75 cents of every dollar in sales. So every dollar that Microsoft makes a sale, 75% of that is, is profit, and that's double that of Google or IBM. So numbers don't lie, especially numbers like that. So um, they've done something right. <laughs> Talking about numbers, let's maybe look at the, the, the flip side of that coin and uh, I'm looking at some stats here in terms of maybe some of the things that Bomber did wrong. So let's, let's wear them up against each other. Uh, one, of the, one of the big issues here has uh, listed actually one of the, the main negative things that Bomber has achieved while he's been there is eroding shareholder value. And uh, the stats I'm looking at here, at here says that when he took over about 12 or 13 years ago from uh, Mr. Gates, 
um, they were trading at $60 a share. And that's now dropped to $30 a share. That's a massive, massive drop. Hang, hang on, sorry, the, the shares, just review that. Those numbers didn't make sense to me. The shares... Stock was, so about 12 or 13 years ago, Microsoft stock was tra trading at $60 a share. When Six Steve zero, right, okay. Six zero. Right. And currently it sits at around, I think, $30 a share. So that's a massive drop over the last 12 or 13 years. And it's interesting that uh, after he announced his uh, resignation from the board, the share price didn't really move one way or yeah, another. It was stable, so what does that tell you? Yeah, interesting. <laughs> not, 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 normally if there's a succession, you know, there's always fear and people tend to be negative towards it, but it, this succession seemed to have gone extremely smoothly. Like That's what I'm saying. I think there's a, a general sigh of relief in the, in the wings um, and, and you know, positive feelings about this move. Yeah, look, I mean, Microsoft are an interesting company. I mean, I'm not a, you know, I'm not a particular fan or a particular hater. I've just, you know, I've never, in the, uh, you know, I think, I think when Microsoft 95 came out, it went through a, a phase where it was, you know, it was really started to hit its stride in terms of innovation and impact on the industry. Um, but somehow, you know, at least from a, at least from a brand perspective, I mean, yes, those profit numbers are very, impressive but from a, a brand perspective on the on, on the on, on the sort of coal face of, of tech startup culture um, they've struggled to make branding headway in that in, in that environment not just on the branding side they've also had some real product problems over the last years um, especially you know let's not blame Steve for everything but while he's he's been in, in you know in control of things there's been massive problems with products launching and willy-nilly purchasing of other companies that don't seem to be making any money, cancelling products, you know, things like the Zune and whatnot. They just, they were sort of very too late to the party, number one. And number two, they're kind of half-baked and, and they never had the marketing and sales sort of push through to make them successes like their counterparts, like uh, the iPod and whatnot was back when it came out. So there's been a lot of that kind of stuff happening as well. And I think that's also one of the reasons why a lot of people are really happy to see some new blood step in, some new ideas take you know take hold. I, I can see that Microsoft's already via the new CEOs repositioning who they are, what they are, what they're going to be doing. So there's some you know I'm looking forward to some really exciting stuff. I'm not a Microsoft proponent whatsoever, but you know they do play a very large role in the tech side of things, and it'd be interesting to see strategically where they take the company from here. Yeah, of course, it's pretty early days for the new CEO, and uh, it's always very. I think one of the most difficult positions as a CEO is actually turning around companies. I think Marissa Mayer, Yahoo, is a massive, you know, massive task on her hands. I think the new Microsoft CEO is a massive task. These companies are huge with a lot of momentum in all sorts of directions. That's very difficult to turn around. In many ways, it's a a lot easier starting something that's uh, at a much earlier stage of its evolution or getting involved in something at a much earlier stage of its evolution absolutely you're you know you're almost have to do double the amount of work so it's not something new that you can just uh, mold it the way you want it it's something you have to completely redo which is always a harder task you have to undo and redo instead of just absolutely. doing and it's not just business. You have a lot of cultural things inside these companies that you have to face. So I think those are <laughs> really hard battles. The soft battles are always the most difficult ones, the ones that involve the humans and their feelings and stuff like that. So what would you rate as, as just a tech punter? Would you buy uh, or sell Microsoft stock? 
Uh, that depends if I have. If I have already got Microsoft stock, I'd mostly hang on to it for at least another two years just to see where it goes. If I was looking to buy, I would most probably not go Microsoft. There's better options out there. Uh, you know, my favorite would still be most probably Google at the moment. They're they're strong. They're good. And they're, they're, they keep you know, they still got a level uh, you know level growth, which is really good. Google, of course, turning over about $55 billion a year at the moment versus uh, Microsoft $70 billion a year. So um, um, Apple, Apple just hit um, $100 as of um, Wednesday, Sydney time, Wednesday morning or, or Tuesday night, Sydney time, um, which is a new high, I believe. Oh, they're not doing too bad for lifestyle computing. Yeah, look, it's uh, it's it's a, it's always a, an impressive business. I'm I'm really hanging to see some of the new products that come out. Let's uh, see if uh, there's any new wearables and the new iPhone. And and um, I think I think it's a little bit of a, a make or break time for Microsoft. Uh, sorry, for Apple. Yeah, absolutely, I think you know with the whole sort of departure of the head and you know things changing in Apple, everybody's a bit worried about. Uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, where is innovation going to go and what's it going to look like, you know, without that complete control. So, uh, yeah, it's interesting times on on both fronts. Um, Talking more about cutting-edge tech, um, there's a new startup that's been announced and uh, seem to be making quite headway, uh, a bit of headway, a company called Remedy. And Remedy is a Google Glass application that enables patients to see specialists faster through the eyes of a physician. Now, I'm really interested in the the fusion of uh, medical and, and, and technical and Google Glass has been, you know, derided a bit for being a bit of the segue of, 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 of consumer tech. But I think in the medical field, Google Glass has a ton of applications and I quite I find it quite interesting what this application, you know, um, it, it, it goes just, it goes beyond just what the traditional telemedicine uh, medicine uh, applications of just live streaming and having a specialist at the other end of the um, you know, internet connection looking at, uh, you know, a patient. There's apparently some smarts behind the technology that provides an intelligent summary to the specialist. So a nurse can wear the Google Glass, ask some questions, observe a few things, and then it's my understanding the software then actually provides a nice brief summary to the specialist so the specialist doesn't have to waste their time on um, on bits and pieces that aren't relevant to making a diagnosis so this makes things a lot more efficient for the specialist which means that they can process a lot more patients and it's basically you know much more efficient for everyone um, what, what are your thoughts on on a technology like this so on, on the real-time side here yeah, the the summary some some uh, summation technology is really really exciting it, it definitely will allow the specialist to be able to do uh, you know diagnoses and whatnot a lot quicker but what's also very interesting is that the software provides uh, indexing, indexing search and um, storage facilities so you know all of the cases can be found and searched and also be around for historic reference which is really good for general practitioners as well as the, the specialists so it gives them that you know visual library of um, cases that they can refer to and maybe point to in, in terms of diagnosing other patients. I think it's extremely exciting. My biggest concern is how are you going to liaise or how are you going to coordinate um, the time of the specialist and the, the general practitioner so that, so that this kind of thing can happen real time. Um, they don't really cover that in the, in the article and I suspect that might still be a bit of a bottleneck because the specialist time is always you know, generally a bit uh, more scarce than what the general practitioner is. So that's something that we need to just you know, get more details on and find out more how they're actually going to do the scheduling of 
well, when the specialist actually interacts with the general practitioner and the patient. Well, a spokesperson from the company says the most popular feature is the ability to turn a 60-minute office visit into a two-minute standardized case summary that highlights the key concerns of the patients. So, so I guess they're turning the, it into an asynchronous type of environment. Yeah, so, so what they're doing there is it's no longer real-time. Then they're talking about the specialists reviewing those cases um, separate from the actual visit to the doctor. So, you know... That that has must must have value definitely, but it doesn't really provide you with that quicker real time kind of promise that they're also trying to punt in that article. Yeah, so I think I think it'll be it'll be interesting to see, I guess in the real world environments how this sort of shakes out. It could maybe be some combination of both depending on what the situation is. Um, well. I I know IBM's Big Blue is used for diagnostic medicine um, quite extensively, and as computing and computing power, you know, becomes more commoditized and cheaper to do, you can imagine a world where this kind of thing is not hooked into a specialist, but a specialist deep learning application or computer or you know cluster of computers or mega computer. So all the visual feedback that the doctor has actually feeds into a separate system that can very clearly and very you know in a very large parallel way kind of sift through the stuff that it's seeing to give the doctor better diagnosis um, with regards to the problem. So we may end up in a situation one day where we have general practitioners that have a some kind of AI level between them and the actual specialists maybe, and then uh, you know most of the the, the, the quicker cases can be sifted and filtered through by the artificial intelligence that sits between the general practitioner and the specialist. I mean, I've, I, I remember having this discussion with a cousin of mine in South Africa many, many years ago. He's a specialist um, at one of the hospitals. He heads up casualty. His passion has always been casualty medicine. And um, this was the early days of, of some tools to help with diagnosis, etc. And I mean, from my understanding, wouldn't medical diagnosis be one of the easier applications for computers to actually uh, get right at least 50% of the time? Um, you, need, you need a very clever computer because humans are very bad at disseminating information. So, or disseminating information to computers, let me rather put it that way. That's why you generally would need a human to be able to read not only the, what the person's saying, but put the, what they're saying into context with what you're seeing visually and observing body language and stuff like that. So those are difficult things to do correctly for a computer. Um, and I've read somewhere now that, that Big Blue is actually being used for diagnostic medicine in a very, very efficient and successful way to do these things. So I think we're only just cresting that horizon now in terms of diagnostic medicine and uh, using computing power to actually do that. So the challenge is uh, understanding the whole context, actually um, finding out all the symptoms as opposed to just feeding in symptoms and data and spitting out a diagnosis. Correct. Correct. Because, I mean, there's, so, so there's the human component in terms of actually saying what is wrong correctly so they can make a proper diagnosis, but there's also language involved and whatnot, and people say different things in different languages. You know, slang also plays a role. So you can imagine the various amounts of input that has to be put into a, a, a computer to be able to understand and try and do a proper diagnosis, um, you know, based on human input. Yeah, interesting. Well, uh, this, this is uh, Remedy, a Google Glass application. Um, so we'll put a link on the on the show notes if you have Google Class or involved in the industry, um, check it out. So um, we're going to take a short break. You're listening to Kevin Garber and Charles Mathieu, both from Managed Flitter on the It's a Monkey podcast. By the way, if you want to get an email notification when the podcast 
is released, just go to itsamonkey.com. You can pop in your email address and we'll ping you an email when the podcast goes out. goes out usually every second um, late Friday our time or, or Saturday our time, which is probably Friday your time if you're in the States. Um, so check it on, on um, Saturday or so. You can go to the website and pop in your email address. We're going to take a short break and we're going to be um, talking about innovation, Africa, um, with Florence Caraba. And we're going to talk about her article, Africa's Go-Getting Cities Offer an Entrepreneurial Launch Pad after the break. Stay with us. The It's a Monkey podcast is brought to you by CheckDog. Use CheckDog to easily review and monitor your website for spelling errors, broken links, and broken images, all with the push of one button. CheckDog can also automatically monitor your website and notify you of newly introduced spelling errors. Go to CheckDog.com forward slash podcast to receive 50% off your first month subscription. CheckDog.com, helping the world's leading websites keep their content error-free. You're back with It's a Monkey podcast, uh, coming to you semi-live from Sydney, Australia. My name is Kevin Garber. You're listening to episode 44 of the podcast. And as some of you know, um, the regular listeners, if you listen to this podcast regularly, and you might even be able to pick up from a little bit of the remnants of my accent, I have some African heritage. I grew up and was born in Johannesburg, uh, South Africa. So I maintain quite an a, um, interest in um, Africa and uh, um, the economy in Africa and technology in Africa. And a couple of um, days ago, I on Twitter, um, th- there was a link that was thrown out to an article on a, on a website called The Conversation. And the title of the article was Africa's Go-Getting Cities Offer an entrepreneurial launchpad and I find found some of the the points in that article quite interesting and um, I tracked down one of the authors of the article who's um, Florence Kariba who's the a PhD student at the University of Bath. Florence I appreciate you making the time to join us on Skype uh, um, on the on the podcast today. Yeah, yeah hello. <laughs> Florence um there were a couple of a couple of really interesting points. I mean, you spoke about um, the importance of urbanization as it relates to economic development. But there's one one uh, one. There were a couple of the the two initial points that that jumped out of me. The one was that Africa has 52 cities with more than a million people, which is mm-hmm. uh, I never realized there were there were that many. I mean, 52 is a is is a big number, and yeah. the the second figure which was just really jumped out at me was um, that nearly 40% of Nigerian and Zambian adults are either starting a business or have run one for less than 3.5 years. Now, I mean, 40% of a population starting or running a business is is huge. So let's, let's um, just talk us through you know how significant some of some of these numbers are, and as they relate to the the changing face of economic development in Africa. Um, we start with I guess you you noted uh, I mean you noted the fifty two uh, cities in Africa that are more than uh, have more than a million inhabitants, um, and I guess um, when you think of 
Well, when you think of, for instance, um, I guess coming from, well, being born in Johannesburg, you've got quite a bit of those cities in in, um, in uh, South Africa already, you know, Cape Town and uh, Joburg. Um, and what is really driving this uh, uh, rapid urbanization are, A, the fact that you still, you have 70% of Africans who are of working age. So these are people who are under 30. And as you know, most people who are young, I mean, young people always, uh, you know, they, they are more open to change. So a young person who finishes uh, high school decides, oh, well, I don't want to become like my father and take over, you know, and uh, get into farming. So they move to the cities to look for work. Um, then you also find an expanding middle class, which means that um, as people, you know, have more disposable income, they they then they are, they are, they are not only their you know needs are also also increased, so their demands are also quite uh, more sophisticated. So they want security guards, they want domestic help, you know, you know domestic workers, and these are the people who are coming then moving from uh, the villages to the cities to meet these uh, these demands. You also find that. Um, in a lot of, I guess, most African countries, really, the levels of education have also increased. So, for instance, in Kenya, about maybe five years ago, they introduced uh, universal education. So the government pays up to, I think, um, pays its free education for primary school, which would be up to grade um uh, grade, I think, eight or nine. And that means that as people, you know, as, as uh, literacy levels are also in, uh, increasing, people are, you know, are and then there's that, um, the, the, I guess people uh, with education, that means that people want more. They want more and they're open to new opportunities. And you find also levels of tertiary education have, um, have also opened up and also have also increased, which means that people are then, as a result of, you know, the, uh, the increasing levels of education, especially tertiary education, people don't you know don't want to you know i guess stake out their you know their lives in in the villages you know working as laborers and in you know two dollars a day they want to go to the cities and um and you know just see what the cities hold for them and i guess the resourcefulness of 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 these young people i mean young people are risk takers as we all know you know they're more open to change they're more open to taking risks and if you think that you know 70 percent of the african population is really under 30 you see that there's actually really a, a force behind this um 70 percent uh, of of, of uh, people in africa are under 30. Mm-hmm, 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 which is a huge, huge number. I mean, you've got this. I mean, this is at you know, the peak of the of your working. I guess well, um, your working life, or at least at the beginning. So you can imagine that. Um, I mean, you've got a lot of young people who are determined to make it in the cities. Let me let me um, ask you one question, Florence. In in Silicon Valley, in the technology world, one of the things that drives young people is that people before them have come. And started with nothing and they've made it, whether it's Mark Zuckerberg or the Google guys or the Twitter guys. There's, there, there's, a, there's, a, there's a narrative that has run before them that inspires them, that they know it's possible because people have done it before. Is there, are there similar narratives of success in Africa, of stories that um, you know, people that have come perhaps from more rural areas with some basic education and they've started small businesses and they have landed up having some you know, self-sustaining businesses with a, with a nice lifestyle is, and, and people see this and they try to replicate this because I'm, I'm quite um, amazed that without sort of 
big narratives that they would sort of be, you know, still still be really um, dreaming big if someone hasn't come and done it before them, so to speak. Yeah, I guess probably I would say that is again, um, when you think of, you know, I'm thinking for, I'm from Kenya and, uh, oh, I, you know, I, I come from the village um, and I did leave the village at one point, I guess. I was one of those that left the village. Um, and I would think that for me, um, well, like I had cousins that grew up in the city. So, I mean, uh, and and, um, and we had almost the kind of the same uh, kind of, you know, upbringing. But I would imagine that for someone who may not have had cousins that live in Nairobi, what they see on television, that's the thing. Um, in the last, uh, I would say, maybe 15 years, um, you know, just uh, television and the access that people have of television in the in the villages that has kind of opened up their, I mean, their imaginations and their their um they get to know what is happening in the cities because before that, few people could afford television, um and few people could really uh, knew what was going on in the, in in uh, in in the big cities so they listened to the radio or maybe they had stories, but now with television you and, and and of course social media social media everyone has that most people most young people even in the villages have a facebook account so um what do these kids is that, do is that they, right even even the women in the villages in kenya have a facebook account oh well my mom does but um she uh but she has a, an internet cafe so probably that's one of the reasons but um i wouldn't say that maybe the the village the, the the women is such but i'm i'm not thinking more of the younger people right, so the, right. you know this this 70 percent that you were talking about earlier yeah so um these people under 30 these people are, are the people who are going to even though they don't have a computer as such they'll go to the internet cafe and you know and they will they will read what is going on in Nairobi. they are going to watch shows on youtube they're going to, you know, they have uh, a Facebook, so they're going to, they, they know what is going on in the cities. And that's how the stories of those who've made it in Nairobi, you know, those, they, you know, either, I don't know, it could be someone who's... Um, a, a rapper or you know a big uh you know usually with the with the you the, someone in entertainment or or even someone in um in business you know they're able to to get access to these stories because well a they've got uh this internet connection at least at the local at the local internet cafe and also through um television which when growing up really uh, for me i mean at the time we didn't especially with television we really didn't have that you know, um, uh, you know, the number of, um, uh, at the time it was more controlled, more regulated so that, you know, the, the government kind of almost regulated what you saw on TV, but now there's, there's more, I know the, um, I know the feeling I grew up in a similar environment. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and at the time, I mean, we didn't we didn't know what was going on in the city other than the president went and did this and that. So, but now there's more, you know, there's just more. I don't know openness, I guess. So, and so I'd say um, uh, access to uh, well, social media, uh, which is really, I mean, that's the technological bit whereby you know, as in internet access, more people have access, you know, to, to the internet and they can be able to see what people in Nairobi are doing, what opportunities are available in Nairobi, what opportunities are available um, in the bigger cities that are not available in the villages, and this drives them um, to move to the cities. And speaking of Kenya, I mean, another um, fascinating fact um, in your article that says 25% of Kenya's GDP, GDP flows through M-Pesa. 
I mean, that, mm-hmm. that's, that's really remarkable. Do you want to, I mean, uh, not everyone, um, unless they're involved in tech and, and payment systems, will know what M-Pesa is. Do you want to just give us a, a sort of a, a, a quick snapshot of, of what it actually is and why it's, um, you know, how it's come to be so significant in Kenya? So M-Pesa is really, it's a mobile banking kind of, um, it's mobile banking really, whereby um, it was started by uh, um well, Safaricom, one of our big uh, uh, mobile companies, and it's really um, uh, an application that helps you, if you, as long as you have a, a, a mobile phone, to either uh, send money or receive money um, from another person. And this has really um, just opened up, because for a long time too, uh, people never really had a way of, you know, people kept their, you know, you know, kept their money in, I don't know, under the mattress really, because um, uh, the people who were able to open and, uh, bank accounts were only those who had salary jobs, stable salary jobs. I mean, there was that bias uh, in the banking center, uh, sorry, sector. But now with M-Pesa, uh, which is really this application that allows people to send money, receive money, um, on your mobile phone. So what happens is that, for instance, I, you know, I want to send you um, ten dollars. I just uh, all I need is your number. So you give me a, your, your cell phone number. I, I put your cell phone number and I say how much I want to send ten dollars, um, and then I, I click send on my phone and you receive it. And um, and they do. Uh, of course, yes, they have. It's it's quite you know they, they they have quite a bit of you know security. Yeah, they've had some security issues, but they've taken care of those quite well. Um, and so people are able to use this application, you know, the, 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 this mobile um uh, payment system to 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 either you know make payments. You know, I can go to the shop. I don't need to carry money with me. So all I need to do is go to the shop. I, I tell the, um, the you know the trader or the you know the seller what I want. So I want to buy an address, which is going to cost me twenty dollars, and he gives me his uh, cell phone number. I put that in. I send him the twenty dollars, uh, and then uh, when he and, and and it's immediate. So he he receives the money, and then I can take my dress home. So it's it has inc- it has improved the way people do business. You don't have a to carry money around, and of course. I would imagine coming from South Africa, you've got also some security, um, I mean, some, well, the safety and probably, I mean, we have that in Kenya, whereby it's probably not safe to go carrying around a huge amounts of money. You don't want to to um, to go carrying around huge amounts of money. Um, so that has helped um, take care of at least, you know, you, you're not as susceptible to crime as we as as in, in the past, because most people now, I mean, they, they do business on their, on the cell phones, you don't have to carry huge amounts of money around. And of course, so, um, uh, and that's, and you don't need a smartphone to use M-Pesa, do you? That's, that's what's been one of the successes, you can use it on a, just an old style, um, you know, mm-hmm. non smartphone. Am I correct? Yeah, yeah, it's, I mean, old, really old, yeah, phones, you know, you don't need, yeah, you don't need the fancy, yeah, smartphones, um, so, which means that everyone really can, can, you know, is able to, to use this um, mobile banking, you know, is able to use uh, M-Pesa, just about every, I would imagine that, um, and I know other, uh, other, Safaricom is one that started this, uh, and, or that, that, that developed this, and I know other uh, mobile companies have also tried to replicate this, but um, just about, 
I would imagine at least all the people I know um, have M-Pesa accounts. Every, when I go home, even it's just for a couple of weeks, I always get, and it's also easy to then get access to, um, you know, for instance, when I go home, I, all I need to do is buy a scratch card, really, or buy a SIM card. And as long as I have a phone, I put, you know, if I get a SIM card, I can be able to easily open an M-Pesa account. All you need is an identification, really. So all I need to do is give my identification, and I'm able to open an M-Pesa account and i've noticed that every time i go home um i have to open an, an mpesa account you know because you cannot do without one it's just a way of of doing business it's a way um it's a way that people you know it's not even doing business it's even families helping each other out oh you know why don't you send me i don't know five thousand you know i'm stuck somewhere or i need money for something and it's just you cannot do without it's funny this is not that old but now it's like we're so dependent on it we can't do without mpesa it's um yeah it's fascinating it's 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 really one of the one of the success stories of African tech, uh, you know, African um, conceived and, and built technology. Um, early stage venture capital funding, um, you know, seed stage investment. I know in South Africa, there's there's a little bit that happens. Um, any of the other parts of Africa, are you aware of much going on where, you know, some, some youngsters with a bit of coding experience can get you know, a couple of hundred thousand dollars or something like that to, to try build a product out? Is there much of that happening that you're aware of? Um, I would say that at least what I've seen so far, um, and based on just my contacts in the country is that a lot of people um, that come to start, you know, to help, you know, to either start businesses, either in IT or um, or even just regular, you know, retail um, uh, uh, businesses, they they have Western contacts. So what I've noticed, like I have a cousin, well, I guess there are a lot of personal stories here um, that um, has an IT business. Yeah, he, he, he you know, he, he 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 produces some software that he sells to to um to uh, small businesses and um like for him i know that he had you know he he only started this business because his friend was coming from um from mit um and uh and they were able to then link up and through that they were able to um you know the friend in mit not only had the then well yeah well the experience and the knowledge but also i think had some contacts in the us so you've got a lot of like returnees have this um contacts you know western contacts they and and not just you know with westerners but also with the diaspora because the diaspora has i mean when you think of the much you've got I think um, billions sent by you know uh, 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 Kenyans in diaspora every year to the country, billions of dollars. So there's a huge access to foreign exchange for uh, a lot of Kenyan um, business, uh, a lot of Kenyan entrepreneurs. If you have a cousin or or a sister abroad, they can help give you some, you know they can give you some money to start a business, um, you know because the money is coming in dollars. So you know, okay, I send you ten thousand. That is good enough to actually be able to start something small and if you know if you have um five cousins and five friends then you can actually be able to raise quite a bit of money if each of them gave you two thousand dollars so i've seen a lot of that whereby people actually depend on their on their social networks to raise this money um so it's uh, more like more like angel angel networks um that sort of form informally to to fund sort of little businesses yeah, as opposed to, I guess, venture cap, you know, uh, uh, capitalists. Because I would imagine that unless, 
you know, really an established um, uh, uh, business. Like uh, I know the Iroko, then uh, the um, this Nigerian kind of uh, Netflix, uh, these Nigerian Netflix that and, and they do a lot of Nollywood movies. They um they they, they provide Nollywood movies on on um, on the internet. They, such become you know you know uh, for for startups that have actually have that 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 seem to I guess have captured the uh, our western i guess uh, in, interest in the western world for those uh, you know for for such um businesses they might be able to get access to you know venture capital um uh, funding as opposed to the small smaller businesses I would imagine you know ushahidi or m copper these are small these are uh, are you know like ushahidi is this crowd uh, crown uh, crowdfunding sorry cross sourcing um uh, technology and this has also gotten a lot of attention in the Western um, uh, media and I guess as a result they also got a lot they've gotten a lot of um, funding from uh, from the West but I think for small uh, small scale kind of businesses and startups really a lot of people depend really on their social networks because loans are so expensive in Africa so, yeah. Uh, and I was amazed to see that an estimated three hundred and fifty nine thousand South Africans have returned to South Africa in the past seven years. South African expats. I mean, that's a that's a pretty significant number, and I assume, uh, and that's they probably you know mainly professionals that have come back. So that's a real investment into the country of um, mm. skills and and capability, and probably even capital as well. That's really a big number. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and it's, especially I think in terms of skills, because these and because these are people who come with fresh ideas. Yeah, they come with fresh ideas. They've lived in the West. They they they, they want to try out different ideas. You know, um, you you know, if for instance, if uh, I, I mean, and I do know. Um, again, I've got contacts at home. I know that some. You know, when you've lived in the West and you are kind of uh, you're used to a certain type, you know, lifestyle, and you go back home and you're like, oh, this is missing, this is lacking here. So you, um, you know, like spas. I know, like a friend who went home and decided, okay, well, I'm going to start a spa because, well, she went home and there was really no, you know. I mean, there's no place that she could go, um, you know, for her, I, I don't know, facials and, um, and uh, you know, nice um, uh, massages. So she decided, okay, I'm going to start a spa and a, a high-end uh, a spa. And with the rising middle class, or rather the expanding middle class, these, you know, these are the people who want to, to, to have access to such services. So people coming from the West come with these fresh ideas, which are not, uh, uh, which are, uh, are, are not, you know, they're not, I would say they're Western ideas, but Africans are open to them and they're willing to try them out, um, some of these, you know, um, services. Um, so I would say that the people coming home, the returnees really do bring quite a, you know, they bring more than capital back. Uh, you know, they, they introduce and inject these fresh ideas into the economy and they, and they provide, they kind of expand our range of services. Uh, actually, uh, when I was coming to Australia, I was um, applied for a master's degree, and my my lecturer at my university in Johannesburg, he said that to me. He said he was very passionate about uh, South Africa, and he said, "I'm really encouraging you to go, but I'm encouraging you to go with the view to coming back and bringing back a lot of benefit back to the country." So um, I think I think for people that are from Africa, it's uh, maybe it's true for all migrants that wherever you grow up will be your home. But um, mm-hmm. Africa's got a uh, not not for us to get too nostalgic here, but Africa's definitely mm-hmm. got a got a rhythm and a heart and a flavor that's um, 
you definitely miss when you you know when you're in other countries and some people mm. some people eventually i know people that have found that pool just too strong and they've just they've gone back because mm. they they want to they want to be back in africa mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i guess uh, uh home is where the heart is they say <laughs> uh, absolutely florence tell us more are you a phd student what um what is your phd and what's your area of interest i couldn't find much about you online Oh, yeah, I'm quite a newbie uh, um, online, but um, yeah, I'm in organization studies and I'm actually looking at uh, um, migration. So um, I'm looking at, other, well, my PhD really uh, is on um, African health workers that come to the UK and how, you know, what obstacles they face and how they really try, you know, the process of trying to get into the healthcare um, sector in the UK, what it entails, what it demands of them, uh, the obstacles that they face and how they manage these obstacles. So it's really about self-initiated expatriates, but coming from Africa, because what we have is that for a long time, um, uh, immigrants from the uh, developing world are almost always just lumped together. They're seen as people who are coming to take away from, um, uh, 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 you know, to take away, to take, you know, you know, the, you know, either the services that they're not bringing in anything. They are coming to take away. Either they're coming for jobs, they're coming for 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 security, financial security, but they're not seen as people who are coming to contribute to the society. And um, and as a result, they're always just kind of, you know, lumped together as this economic, um, you know, almost exclusively economic migrants. But when you think of nurses, especially nurses, because I'm looking at nurses and care aides, these are people who um, whose skills are in shortage, especially in the UK. So they are coming because um, these are a nursing shortage in the UK. So their their skills are actually required in the UK, and that's why they they've been recruited in the first place. And as such, they're coming to contribute to the economy. They're not just um, yeah, taken. So. Um, so uh, I guess what my emphasis is that these are not, you know, it's not your uh, 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 voiceless migrant. It is actually someone with the skill set uh, ready to come and, um, you know, contribute to the economy. And so, um, yeah, so it's really about migration. Well, interesting, you know, there's a lot of, you know, obviously it's a, a hot topic, migration, refugees, asylum seekers. It's, it's always a hot topic around the world. And um, I spend a bit of time in the States and, you know, there's a lot of undocumented migrants there from, from Central America and from Mexico. And one, mm-hmm. of, the, one of the narratives by some of the, the political groups are always that, ah, oh, you know, it's a, it's a drain on resources and social securities. And they actually did a study on undocumented migrants and they found that undocumented migrants are actually a net benefit and actually contribute to the tax base more than they take away so um, Mm -hmm. you know I think I think I think the emotions sort of sometimes take away from this all but it's migrants add to um, you know 99.9% of migrants in my opinion just and I've obviously got a vested interest being a migrant but uh, <laughs> re- really add to the, the the fabric of a society and it's a pity when uh, interests get hijacked by all sorts of other political interests but uh, such is such yeah. is the world we live in Florence I really appreciate your time joining us from uh, um, the University of Bath. Uh, Florence um, Karaiba um, is a PhD student at the University of Bath. I'll put the link up to your article. Hopefully, you'll get a Twitter account soon and people can follow you because it's, uh, it's an interesting uh, area of conversation. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Appreciate your time. Thanks. Bye-bye. 
The It's a Monkey podcast is brought to you by Manage Flitter. With Manage Flitter, you can easily find out who isn't following you back, find new people to follow, track keywords on Twitter, and schedule tweets for the most appropriate times. Tweet code MONKEY2 at Manage Flitter to receive a one-month free budgie account. Charles, you're part of the interesting, you're based in Cape Town, South Africa, and you're part of what uh, the article you know, alludes to as the reverse brain drain. Over 359,000 highly skilled South Africans have returned back to South Africa. Uh, that, that happens a lot more often than I think people know. People normally only hear the, the flip side of that coin, you know, how many people have left and whatnot, but there's a fair amount of people returning. And uh, as the article states, generally the, the reasons are the same. You know, normally it's, it's things like family and whatnot that bring you back, but also the fact that you now have capital and you have certain kinds of skills that aren't easily acquired here that you've acquired um, internationally in the international space, which you can then easily apply locally, which, and, and because the African climate for entrepreneurism is, you know, very different to say Australia, which I've also been exposed to. Um, it's much easier here to get something off the ground and get capital and funding because you can start smaller and things cost a bit less. So, you know, it's here, easier here to take your international skills. Here, here, here being, being South Africa. Africa. Yeah. So, so my African context is definitely very South African, you know, focused, and tainted. <laughs> but um, I think the same story plays out everywhere else based on the article that I read from Florence. Um, you know, it seems like the same patterns repeated all over Africa. People leave because they're looking for better, you know, opportunities, uh, you know, and then family kind of always draws them back in or whatever the case might be. Or opportunities for business always draws them back in. They come back to capital, they're able to afford a bit, you know, a bit more stuff. And then they're also able to start smaller businesses, get things going, which is really a, a net benefit for the, the African uh, economy. One of um, one thing that fascinates me about traveling is no matter where you go in the world, you go to Tokyo, you go to New York, you go to LA, you go to Cape Town, you go to Melbourne, there are, there are anomalies in markets in that there is always something missing somewhere. You always think, you always go to one city and you think, oh, you know, it's, it's that, that bike rental service that works so well in New York. Wouldn't it be amazing in Tokyo? Or you're in Tokyo and you think of... So, you know, so the opportunities, you really do get exposed to, to interesting opportunities. Um, they're, they're these anomalies, no matter how sophisticated or unsophisticated markets are. Absolutely. And that's most probably one of the things that drive, you know, entrepreneurial um, inspiration is if you're able to get out there and see how other people are doing things and thinking how you can actually reapply those ideas to your local context. And, and you know, there's a lot of value in that for the community and for the economy. I think, you know, um, as an entrepreneur and as a tech entrepreneur, you, you know, propensity for risk um, is, is always a, a good predictor. And, uh, you know, South Africans are great entrepreneurs. Elon Musk is, is one of the most famous these days, and he's from Pretoria. Um, there's, um, you know, Israel produces great entrepreneurs. And... Um, you know, they, they grow up in a very risky, complex environment. And the rest of Africa is also, you know, a complex environment. There, there are a lot of um, the makings of, of an entrepreneurial ecosystem. And um, I actually, you, you know, they, they um, a lot of people in Africa are inherently entrepreneurial, not because they read TechCrunch and get inspired by Mark Zuckerberg, but because um, it's... It's uh, necessity breeds, uh, you know, innovation. 
and absolutely. Um, and it's a way in many, it's a way to a better a, a life for them. Absolutely. In many ways, it's much easier to start your own thing than it is to try and you know make someone else successful. <laughs> so, I think in many ways, uh, entrepreneur you know the entrepreneurial spirit is driven by a very inward focused kind of force, um, and especially in, in South Africa, Africa in general, I guess the, the entrepreneur getting, you know, your own business going and, and making a bit of money out of that, getting some capital capital in either via family or some form of funding is uh, generally a very easy or easier thing to do than some of the other economies that I've seen. I believe uh, microloans have been very successful and particularly successful with uh, women entrepreneurs um, around the world and a very, very high rate of, of uh, successful payback of these very, very low interest loans. And often, you know, people just need um, a couple weeks of living money. You know, that sometimes is all it takes is they just need a couple of weeks of money for, for food and, and rent to actually start up a little operation that, um, that can sort of get a little bit of momentum and bring in some cash flow. Um, that is the case. Uh, unfortunately, the flip side of that as well is there's a lot of micro-lending that's, that's causing a lot of havoc in, in the developing com- countries um, and people are ending up you know, worse off than what they started kind of thing because of these micro-loans. And I think it's got a lot to do with you can't just give somebody money and expect them to make a success. I think you know, there's the financial side definitely, but also some, some form of business mentorship to make you know, them a successful business person. That, that's really where your, your money will you know, show returns. And I think that's sometimes a little bit lacking, uh, lacking that I've seen at least. I think though microloans that are created in a commercial sense is a whole different kettle of fish to microloans that are, are managed through um, you know, a not-for-profit type of program. Um, I, th- I could definitely see microloans created in a commercial sense at a commercial rate um, causing a, a lot of potential problems. Um, even yeah, so even small businesses, it's it's really easy to get at some institutions in South Africa. You'll see uh, Africa Bank in South Africa is in, in the headlines at the moment for lots of problems. Zaire, for instance, would give out money very easily to smaller personal or small business or personal you know personal kind of micro loans, and uh, you know there's some dubious things happening there, and it's just actually leading to more problems than than anything else. But you are right, it's. It's easy to get these microloans, and sometimes that's all you need for an entrepreneur to actually launch themselves off and actually just you know get somewhere somewhere with what they want to do, which is good. I know when I first started out, I mean that's um, you know I won't go into the whole long boring story, but um, you know I, I partnered with um, some some other people that provided um, free office space to me in lieu for some other services, and um, you, you know I really kept my costs low for. Um, f- for you know six to twelve months whilst I ramped up a little bit of revenue and that that little that little breathing space just for that time period is what stood between me giving it a go or having to be on a job so I could pay um, for my food and rent and um, yeah. you know luckily things have have worked out and we employ people and we generate um, you know, export dollars for Australia and all and, and all wonderful things as a result of just that sixty little twelve month breathing window that I engineered for myself. Yep. So the I love the barter system actually. I think it's a fantastic way to exchange um, goods, ideas, services, the whole shebang. The big problem there for me has always been um, how do you value what you're giving versus what you're taking, kind of thing. 
that's always a very interesting um, dilemma to have. And of course, in the tech startup world, the ultimate barter system is I give you money and you give me equity. <laughs> that's, that's not really barter, is it? Well, I mean, look, I mean, barter, I mean, I mean, in the meta sense of the word, any exchange is barter, you know, when it happens yeah. to include money, we say it's a transaction, but it's all, it's all value exchange, really. Absolutely. I think just, uh, I prefer the, if, if money doesn't have to change hands, it, it, it leads to a very different kind of relationship with the person that you're, you're, uh, you're aligning with. Uh, whereas if, if money is, is the, the sole exchange, then uh, things are always a little bit different. Absolutely. So, um, I mean, have you, have you sensed, um, you know, you, since you came back to, to Cape Town from Sydney and, um, I mean, do you sense that the entrepreneurial spirit is different in Sydney and Cape Town? Um, I, I, I wasn't very, I must be perfect honest, I wasn't very hooked into the what's happening in terms of the entrepreneurial spirit in Australia when I was there, in Sydney specifically. But um, in South Africa, it seems to be extremely vibrant. I mean, there's, there's just so much going on in terms of trying to get small businesses going, trying to help people out, you know, people that are looking for uh, funding people that are looking to fund people, you know, you really don't have to go very far to, to get an audience of people to chat to about your idea and, and potentially working away with some capital um, if you want to do something. There's also a, a massive network of, you know, things seems to have, seem to have proliferated while I was away in terms of uh, development people or business people and integration of those people and the networks and, and how they all communicate with each other. So that's all seemingly happening you know, very quickly and, and very efficiently. And as I said, it's, it's really prolific here, which is fantastic to see. It's really good growth for the economy. Oh, um, there's an uh, Australian internet company, IINet, that people would be familiar with. Um, they used to have a lot of their tech support in Cape Town, I believe. I don't know if they still do, but they probably still do. Um, of course, another very famous South African entrepreneur, Mark Shuttleworth, who... Um, Sold out to Verisign, I believe. He had some uh, SSL. Yep. His, business, his business was called Thought, and he sold it out. He's also running out of Cape Town. Um, since then, he's moved into Ubuntu, which is a distribution of Linux, and uh, he's been he's been moving that along. Well, the company, the Ubuntu Foundation, have been moving that along quite nicely, and he's been doing well for himself. From what I can can see, his space flights and whatnot that he's doing. Yeah, I mean, I I grew up in South Africa, and I've spent a lot of time in Sydney, and it's. Um, it it was a lot it was a lot less scary for South Africans to start up a business in many ways than than in Sydney. I think um, in, in in Sydney um, there's a lot of good jobs and there's a lot more to lose than starting up a good business. Whereas in South Africa, getting good jobs are a lot more complex, and I believe it's even become even more complex these days in getting a jo- good job. So you have, relatively speaking, more to gain by starting up. Um, which is one of the reasons why um, entrepreneurship uh, has a good future in South Africa. Yeah, absolutely. So traditional jobs here are extremely competitive, and a lot of people find that they would rather take the energy that it would you know expend trying to get a job like that. They would rather focus on doing something that they really want to do, and starting something that that, that they really believe in and feel passionate about. So, you know, that's just the breeding ground for for entrepreneurism. Um, it's a, so a similar reason why young people tend to start a lot of business in the tech world. They've got little to lose. Um, once, you, w- once you have more to lose, it's, it's the, the risks are harder to take. Absolutely. 
Uh, we used to, our next door neighbor in South Africa used to be the manager of a, a pretty large insurance company. And every time, um, very smart guy, and every time there'd be a round of retrenchments at some of the big companies in South Africa, he would say, this is fantastic for the economy. All those people are going to go and start little businesses and create <laughs> value. <laughs> so, so easier well, said than done. Not, not fun when you're the one that uh, has to wear it, but, um, you know. Well, there's a, lot, there's a lot of truth in it. See, so South Africa doesn't have the doll or any kind of state you know, that kind of state sponsorship. So you really are incentivized to do something if you if you don't have a, a job like that. And, you you know, the informal markets there were always really this raw entrepreneurialism, you know, guys cutting hair and selling <laughs> bottles of Coke and it's... Um, it's uh, Selling well, cigarettes whatnot. Yeah, cigarettes. Back in the days when they still smoked. Exactly. Um, so... Um, Charles, anyway, people can follow you on Twitter. We'll we'll put up your Twitter handle as well. Charles, um, uh, it works on our system on a lot of uh, a lot of the really chunky backend bits and pieces. Manage Flutter has has a monster backend, and um, Charles uh, a genius in many areas, including on the backend side of things. So um, we'll be chatting to Charles on the podcast every now and then, mixing up a couple of couple of the voices. And Charles, thank you very much for joining us. I believe uh, you're having some complicated Cape Town winter weather. Yeah, no, it was actually beautiful over the weekend. Lovely 30-degree days, uh, nice and sunny at the beach. And then all of a sudden, things just went topsy-turvy. Now it's just rain and wind and pretty miserable at the moment, actually. I have to say, it is one of the most excruciatingly beautiful cities in the world, Cape Town. I don't use that word lightly. But even when we were young, the Cape Town winter had a little bit of a reputation. Absolutely. Now, you, if, if, depending on where you stay, you can definitely get blown away here, that's for sure. Yeah, the wind. I'm told it's not too different from Melbourne. I haven't, I haven't experienced Melbourne myself, or the, the worst of Melbourne myself just yet. Aren't there parts of Cape Town where they've like, they, they had built special handrails so when the wind blows, you can hold on yeah. to them? In the CBD, there was. I don't know if they're all still there anymore. I, since I've moved to Cape Town, I haven't actually experienced that kind of wind, not in the areas that we stay or the CBD itself. I know there are some other areas that are really crazy where a friend of mine stays up against the mountain and they just they can't grow any grass because the wind blows so bad, it actually blows the grass out of the ground. Huh. <laughs> what, what, what area is that? Um, uh, what's the area? It's on the northern tip of False Bay. Um, I can't think of oh, the area okay. just yet, but, some, but that, some, that's where that's that's where the wind starts. He likes to tell me. Like they also don't leave windows and stuff open because the wind when the wind comes up and it's also very gusty. It'll just smash the whole window out. And that's why there's a great community of wind surfers and probably kite surfers now in Cape Town. Oh, as absolutely, well. it's massive, 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 massive um, wind surfers, especially kite surfing. They're really, really big. If if the wind's pumping, these guys are out on the waves, and, and of course it's not raining. Then they're out on the wide waves doing these the thing. They actually follow the the, the weather around the, the southern tip of the coast. So they love to do some um, some of the, the surfing stuff from an area called Misty Cliffs. It's also a beautiful area. Friend of mine stays there, and there's a fair amount of wind there too, which is pretty cool. And um, excitingly, this week the curator of the at Cape Town Twitter list signed up for a managed Flitter account. Oh, that's pretty interesting. I, I happen to join them. About two or three weeks as well, so that's that's pretty cool. I'll will just uh, double check. Um, yeah, to the at um, she manages the at Cape Town Twitter account. So a shout out um, to the at Twitter um, account. So they they are now a paid member 
of managed flutter so that was that was pretty cool and they got pretty excited when i told them that a capetonian is uh is working on the service and a <laughs> joburg person is also working on the service there we go. Thank, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. Um, stay out of the, the crazy weather and we'll catch you maybe in a few episodes. Excellent. Thank you very much. It's great as always. Have a good day, everybody. Bye-bye.